This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is viewing ourselves and others differently. In the first half, Michael J. Dorff shares his address, Seeing Things Differently. Then in the second half, Kristen L. Matthews speaks on The Worth of Souls is Great. I have been wondering whether I should admit this to such a large crowd. But here we go. My confession is that I love mathematics. I know that for some of you, the word math brings a flood of bad memories. So before you get up to leave, let me share with you a different way to see math. Unfortunately, many people have the mistaken image that math is just a set of rules and calculations. That is not math. My family and I love the NCAA March Madness basketball tournament, sitting around with friends and watching an underdog team beat a highly favored team with a last-second desperation shot is exciting. Compare such a thrilling basketball game to being alone in a gym shooting hundreds and hundreds of free throws. If all I ever did were to shoot free throws over and over all by myself and never play or watch a real game of basketball, I wouldn't like basketball. The same is true of math. Doing endless math drills is like shooting free throws over and over. It's not mathematics. To me, math can be like a game of strategy, such as Settlers of Catan. Once you know the rules of the game, you can explore where the game will take you. In some ways, you'll have to work with me on this one, in some ways, math is like genealogy. You have several family lines you work on, and you may get stuck. But then a new piece of information opens up a previously blocked line. You get excited, and new results are uncovered. The exact same thing happens with mathematics. You could be working at the Disney Research Group using math to create realistic-looking hair in the movie Moana. Or you could be designing a new method for Netflix to determine what movies a subscriber would like. Or you could even be working on an abstract math problem that uncovers new results, such as finding a fast algorithm to determine whether or not a number is prime. This is how I see mathematics and why I love it. To me, mathematics is beautiful. Now, the world has many beautiful things. Watching a rising full moon peeking over the Wasatch Mountains on a dark winter night, like this past weekend. Sitting outside on a New Hampshire fall evening savoring poetry by Robert Frost, listening to the Vienna Philharmonic perform Beethoven's Ninth Symphony in the 150-year-old neoclassical Wiener Musikverein concert hall. All of these things are beautiful to me. Likewise, mathematics is beautiful. Now, some of you may think I'm crazy. Remember, when I think of math, I'm not talking about those endless drills that you probably did in high school. When people ask me what research I do, I say I study the math of soap bubbles. Actually, these are soap films that are formed by dipping wires or frames in a bucket of soapy water. To me, these soap films are fascinating. The shapes they take, the way they reflect light, their fragile nature. 
They relate to mathematical shapes known as minimal surfaces. There is a harmony between the shapes soap films take in nature and the mathematics behind minimal surfaces. I study the mathematics related to this and I find it beautiful. I encourage you to explore how mathematics is different than a set of rules and calculations. In much the same way that I hope you will begin to see mathematics in a different and positive way, I want my students to see me as their professor in a different and positive way. Some students are afraid of their professors. On the first day of the semester, the students often ask, how should they address me? Should they call me Professor Dorf or Dr. Dorf or Brother Dorf? When I tell them that I want them to call me Coach Dorf, they look a bit puzzled. I tell them that I want them to see me as their math coach, someone who's there to guide them and help them succeed, just like a sports coach would do. I want them to see me not as someone who's trying to fail them, but instead as someone who's trying to help them succeed. I want them to see me differently. In addition to seeing mathematics and my role as a professor differently, I think of Christmas differently. If you talk with my students, they will probably tell you that Coach Dorf loves Christmas. I look forward to Christmas and I mention it occasionally when I teach my classes in the fall. Okay, perhaps more than occasionally. Some people say you shouldn't talk about Christmas or listen to Christmas music until after Thanksgiving. That may, <laughs> that may be true. But that is looking at Christmas as only a specific date, December 25th. I like to think of Christmas not as a date, but as a way of thinking or as a state of mind. Christmas to me is remembering Jesus Christ, his birth and the gift of eternal life. Christmas to me is remembering how we should treat the people we interact with, whether they be our family, our friends or strangers, whether they have the same beliefs or different beliefs than we do whether they look like us or look different than us. I experienced this Christmas state of mind a few years ago at Jackson State University in Mississippi. The university was opening a new center for undergraduate research. Now let me interject here. When I teach, I often give commercial breaks. This is a chance for Coach Dorf to give fatherly advice to the students. This is a commercial break. If you're a BYU student, you should do undergraduate research. Undergraduate research has been shown to help you do better in college and be more successful after you graduate. And BYU is a wonderful place to do undergraduate research. I encourage all students to do undergraduate research. Okay, now back to the regular program. So I was, uh, Jackson State University was opening a new center for undergraduate research and I was invited to give some talks to the faculty and students. Jackson State University is an HBCU, Historically Black Colleges and Universities. Over 90% of the students are African American. During my visit, the university was inaugurating a new president, and I attended the ceremony along with the Jackson State faculty and staff. During the ceremony, I was introduced and asked to stand. As I did so, I could see the entire audience and it was apparent that I was one of the very few Caucasians in the group. I have to admit, I felt a bit out of place. Are there times 
when you have felt out of place, like you're not sure you belong? Or are there times when you do not feel out of place, but there may be others in the audience who might feel that they do not belong? What can you do in such situations? After the inauguration ceremony at Jackson State and throughout my visit there, I felt at ease because of how the faculty and students went out of their way to meet me, to talk with me, and to be friendly to me. That experience reminds me to think about how I treat people who may feel out of place, who may be lonely, or who may be different than me. The importance of how we treat people is a recurring theme in the gospel of Jesus Christ. President Russell M. Nelson remarked, Today we have a little more time to bless others, time to be kinder, more compassionate, quicker to thank, and slower to scold, more generous in sharing, more gracious in caring. This is embodied in the story of the Good Samaritan, who went out of his way to help a stranger who had fallen among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead while other people who saw the stranger passed by on the other side and did not help him. Despite the historical antagonism between the Samaritans and the Jews, the Good Samaritan treated this Jewish stranger with kindness. In Matthew chapter 25, verses 35 through 36, we read, For I was hungered, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. Who are the people around us who hunger, or who thirst, or who are strangers? At first, we may think of the people who hunger for food. There are also people who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Are there other ways that people hunger? What about those who hunger for someone to listen to them? who hunger for friendship, who hunger for encouragement, who hunger for respect, who hunger for compassion. Treating people with kindness is easier in theory than in practice. During Christmas—of course, I had to mention Christmas again—my family and I saw the movie Wonder. The movie made such an impact on me that I read the book afterwards. Wonder is the story of a 10-year-old boy, August Pullman, or Augie, who is anxious because he's entering fifth grade in a new school. There are two things that make Augie different than the other school children. Up to now, he has been homeschooled by his mother. And Augie has a medical condition that makes his face look different, so much so that some people stare at him and some kids run away screaming when they see him. The story is about how, at first, most of his classmates treat him as if he has a contagious disease. They avoid him. They think he is a freak, and some bully him. But as his classmates slowly get over their initial prejudice, they begin to see that he is a funny, smart, and fairly normal fifth-grade boy. At the end of the year graduation ceremony, the Henry Ward Beecher Medal is given. Mr. Tushman, the director of the school, says, Courage. Kindness, friendship, character. These are the qualities that define us as human beings and propel us on occasion to greatness. And that is what the Henry Ward Beecher Medal is about, recognizing greatness. The medal goes to Augie. 
During the ceremony, Mr. Tushman quotes J. M. Barry. Shall we make a new rule of life? Always try to be a little kinder than is necessary. What does it mean to be a little kinder than is necessary? Many of us are good at being kind to others, especially in circumstances when we feel good. But it's harder to be kind when you haven't slept well for several nights, or when you're feeling sick, or when you're stressed because of financial problems, or when you've procrastinated doing something important, such as writing that six-page paper for your class, or finishing a presentation, perhaps even finishing a devotional talk. Also, it is harder to be kind, not to mention kinder than is necessary, to others when they act, look, or think differently than we do. However, Christ's teaching on the Sermon of the Mount invites us to do just that. Ye have heard that it has been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hurt you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. I think this last scripture suggests the need to go beyond just treating people with kindness. It hints at the importance of seeing people differently. President Thomas S. Monson declared, We must develop the capacity to see men not as they are at present, but as they may become. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland summarized a comparable idea by C.S. Lewis when he wrote, C.S. Lewis once said that if we could recognize who we were, we would realize that we are walking with possible gods and goddesses, whom, if we could see them in their eternal dignity and glory, we would be tempted to fall down and worship. Because this is true, we need to think more highly of ourselves and we need to think more highly of each other. This vision of others is exemplified in the story about the four sons of Mosiah who traveled to the Lamanites to preach the gospel to them. They did this even though the Lamanites were the enemies of the Nephites and fought against them. They did this even though other Nephites laughed at them for thinking that the Lamanites could or would even want to change. In fact, the other Nephites responded, Let us take up arms against them, that we destroy them and their iniquity out of the land, lest they overrun us and destroy us. The Lamanites were different than the Nephites, yet the four sons of Mosiah saw the Lamanites differently than the other Nephites saw them, and consequently the sons of Mosiah treated the Lamanites with compassion. For me, seeing people in this way is more difficult than treating people a little kinder than is necessary. However, as I try to see people differently, it seems to follow that I treat them with more kindness. Unlike Augie in the story Wonder, most people's appearances does not suggest that they might be different or that they are in need of something. For example, I have been a type 1 diabetic for 45 years. That means that my body does not produce insulin, which is necessary to get energy from the food I eat. To compensate, I have to take a shot almost every time I eat. I have calculated—I'm a math nerd, remember—I have calculated that I have taken about 100,000 shots in my life. My health revolves around balancing medicine, diet, and exercise. If one of these components is off, my blood sugar could get very low. 
so low that I could go unconscious and fall down. When I have low blood sugar, most people will not know. There are few visible signs that this is happening. I look fairly normal, but I am in need of help. I am grateful for the kindness and patience of those who have helped me in these situations. Unfortunately, such low blood sugars rarely happen to me. Another example of seeing or not seeing someone differently happened last semester. I taught two classes of Math 112, Calculus 1, with a total of 494 students. Three times a week I had office hours to answer questions that students had about concepts of calculus and about the homework problems. In my office, I keep a bowl on my desk with about a dozen different flavors of lint chocolate truffles. Kind of ironic for a diabetic. It is amazing how helpful chocolate is in getting people to drop by your office and in making them feel more comfortable talking. After visiting me several times during office hours, students would often tell me about their missions or their families, and I enjoyed learning more about my students. I had one student who regularly visited me during my office hours. Sometimes she would be the only student to show up. Her name was Julia. She was not very talkative, but would ask me one or two specific questions and then leave. During the semester, I never felt like I got to know Julia as well as I had gotten to know other students. With Julia's permission, I want to tell part of her story. On New Year's Eve, Julia sent me an email. Coach Dorf, I just wanted to thank you for the great semester. This is the first time I've ever understood math in my life. I struggled in high school, then got cancer. Coming to BYU, I was extremely apprehensive about taking my first calculus class. I was just told that my cancer metastasized, and to get treated, I must stay in California for the next few months. My heart sank as I read Julia's email. I had no idea she had cancer. There were no outward signs that I had noticed. I expect few students knew that one of their classmates had cancer. As we try to see people differently, it's important to be kind and treat them a little kinder than is necessary because we do not know what's going on in their lives. People do not wear a sign hanging from their neck displaying their current struggles. No one is wearing a sign that declares, I'm scared I'm going to fail my math class, or I had a fight with my best friend, or my mother passed away yesterday, or I'm having a low blood sugar reaction, or even I have cancer. If we knew these things, would we see people differently? Would we treat them differently? The Holy Ghost can guide us to see people differently and to help those with unseen needs. After I earned my undergraduate degree, my wife Sarah, our young daughter Rebecca, and I moved to Nuremberg, Germany, where I taught high school math and English. I did not serve a German-speaking mission, but I did have a minor from BYU in German. We attended a small German-speaking congregation of the Church. I was assigned by a church leader to periodically visit some members of the congregation. One was Michael. He had not attended church for several years, and some members had told me that Michael would not come back to church. I called him one day and asked if I could visit him and his family in their home. Michael said that he was really busy and that he did not want me to visit him now, but in six months I could call him again. So I left it at that. 
Later, one Saturday afternoon, I had some free time, and I thought that a nap would be nice. I laid down on the bed and tried to sleep. But a thought came to my mind. Go visit Michael. I thought, I can't do that. He said, don't visit him. I tried to fall asleep, but the thought that I should visit him did not leave. So I got up from my bed, and as I drove to the address for their house, I tried to figure out what I could say. I arrived at their address. It was an an apartment complex with several floors. Such buildings had a locked front door. You had to ring a buzzer to the apartment you wanted to visit. The residents would ask who it was, and if they wanted to, they would let you into the building. When I arrived at the front door, it was open. I rang the buzzer to Michael's place and then started climbing the stairs to the top floor apartment. When I got there, the front door was open. A man was standing there. It was Michael. I introduced myself and told him I was from the church. He invited me in and I met his wife. He said that they had just had a fight and had decided to get a divorce. Now I'm a math nerd, and I'm not the best talker, especially not in German, but I can listen, and that's what I did. At the end, I wasn't sure what to say, but I told them that coming back to church would help them. They did start attending church, somewhat to the surprise of some of the members of the congregation. And when my family and I left Germany two years later, they were still attending and still married. The Holy Ghost helped me to see this German family in a different way and that blessed both them and me. One last example of how seeing something differently blesses our lives and the lives of those around us. I did not grow up in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My mother was Irish Catholic, and we attended Catholic Mass regularly. I was even an altar boy, which means I assisted the Catholic priest during the Mass. When I was 16 years old, I was interested in learning about other churches. During the summer, I was playing cello in an orchestra and met a violinist, April Meads Moriarty. She and her family were LDS. They gave me a copy of the Book of Mormon. I read it in about 10 days, started attending sacrament meeting and taking the missionary discussions, and was soon converted. My mother was not happy about this. But instead of telling me that I could not talk with the missionaries, she decided to meet with them too in order to point out their mistakes. She was soon converted. (laughs) When my older brother David was home from Harvard, we gave him a copy of the Book of Mormon and asked him to read it. He said he would. A while after he returned to college, we were talking with David on the phone. I asked him if he had read the Book of Mormon. He said he had, and he said it was not true. I was shocked. After that, the topic of the LDS Church did not come up much in our phone conversations with David. The following spring, we were planning to travel to Boston for David's graduation. One day, we were talking with him about our itinerary while visiting him. My mother told him that we wanted to attend the LDS Church on Sunday. David said that he would attend with us, and then afterwards, he wanted me to baptize him. Again, I was shocked. As we talked, he explained what had happened. He said that he had read the Book of Mormon because he told me that he would read it. He wanted to prove that it was not true. 
After telling me that it was not true, he thought that his brother, me, would not do something dumb. Sounds like a comment from a brother. So he decided to read the Book of Mormon a second time. This time he read it differently, and that is when he gained a testimony of his truthfulness. Seeing the Book of Mormon differently has blessed David's life as well as many in his circle of influence. I encourage you to see things in a different and positive way, whether it is mathematics, Christmas, the Book of Mormon, or the people you meet in your daily lives. Our Savior Jesus Christ sees us differently, not as we currently are, but as we may become. I am awed by the love He has for me, who does not deserve it, and for the love He has for all of us, no matter who we are, no matter how different we may be from those around us, and no matter what struggles we have in our lives. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is viewing ourselves and others differently. We've just heard from Michael J. Dorff. After the break, we'll return with Kristen L. Matthews for The Worth of Souls is Great. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is viewing ourselves and others differently. Next is Kristen L. Matthews, BYU Associate Professor of English and Coordinator of the American Studies Program at the time of this address, titled The Worth of Souls is Great. A few months ago, I had the opportunity to travel to Italy for the first time. While there, I saw art created by the great masters—Michelangelo, Botticelli, Fra Angelica, and many others. In Milan, I was able to see the famed Last Supper of Leonardo da Vinci. The mural is in the refectory of the convent of Santa Maria della Grazia, and to see it, one must purchase tickets ahead of time and wait for one's 15 minutes with the painting. When my time drew near, I and 24 others were corralled into a waiting area, guided through two airlocked chambers, and finally allowed in front of the painting for our 15 minutes of communion. As I sat there, I contemplated the painting and why it is considered priceless, the value of which is beyond measure. Is it because the painting is old, created in the 15th century? Is it because of where it is located in Milan? Is it because access is limited? Few people can see it, so it is more valuable than paintings than just anyone could see? Is it because it has been threatened in the past, like when Napoleon used the convent as an armory, prison, and stable, or when it was partially destroyed by bombs during World War II? Is it because it was painted in an unconventional style, painted on a drywall versus in the wet plaster, making it more fragile and rare? Is it because of who painted it, the Master Da Vinci? Is it because of its subject? These questions and others I chewed on while sitting and looking at this painting. I'd like to say that I came up with profound answers that shook me to my core, but instead I came up with more questions. How is it that we measure value? What makes something, and more importantly, someone, of worth? 
As a professor of literature and culture, it is my job to look at systems of meaning and value, language being the first and foremost. If we go to the Oxford English Dictionary, the fifth standard work for all English majors, the entry for the word value reads, worth or quality as measured by a standard of equivalence, a standard of estimation or exchange, something worth having, material or monetary worth of something, an appraisement, relative rank or importance, estimation based on real or supposed desirability or utility, opinion of or liking for a person or thing, worth or worthiness in respect to rank. According to these definitions, a thing's value is contingent on ideas of estimation, desirability, likability, and worthiness. It is at the center of the word evaluate, to analyze. Yet too often we do not ask the question, who determines the system of value by which we are considering, classifying, and ranking things or people? Who determines the mechanism of evaluation and the indices of what is evaluated? Who sets the standard of equivalence that says some things have greater worth than others? As human beings, one of the things that we do to understand our world is to create systems of meaning that help us to organize the sensations, experiences, and objects we encounter. I think of a time I was reading with my oldest nephew, Connor, as he was learning different categories of animals, how a dog is not a cow and a cow is not a zebra, what the animal looked like, how it sounded, and what it ate all factored in as he learned how to identify these different species. Similarly, we have created categories like nationality, race, ethnicity, sex, religious affiliation, political party, marital status, and so on to organize and make sense of humankind's diversity. However, too often we use these seemingly descriptive systems to determine the worth of others. These human-made hierarchies of values can cause division, contention, and skewed understandings of self-worth. Conversely, God's system of valuing us promotes connection, compassion, and love. We are His children. He loves us unconditionally, eternally, and unchangingly. Our worth is infinite as we are His daughters and sons. And no one's spirit is more valuable than the other. So then, why do we fall short of loving and measuring right God's children? We read in the Doctrine and Covenants 18.10 that the worth of souls is great in the sight of God. But do we really believe that? Or do we bookmark that scripture in our minds as only for missionary purposes? Today, I'd like to reflect upon how we might better align how we value others with how the Lord values His children so that we may be true disciples of Christ. So, what are you worth? This is a question I overheard as I may or may not have been eavesdropping on a recent flight. In my defense, it's hard not to hear everything going on around you on a plane, particularly when you have super hearing like I do, um, as my students will tell you. In response to the question, the petition gentleman cited portfolio figures, property holdings, and his net financial wealth. My first thought was, holy cow, I hope nobody measures my worth by what's in my savings account, otherwise I'm in trouble. But then I sat and thought more about how externalities like wealth are used to ascribe value to individuals. 
It reminded me of Edith Wharton's novel, The Age of Innocence. In that text, Wharton satirizes the intricate set of codes that the very wealthy used to dictate behavior and measure worth in Gilded Age New York. People who abided by these strict codes were accepted into high society as a valued member. Those who did or could not abide by these codes were dismissed as vulgar, low-class, and the worst of all designations, unpleasant. When I teach this novel, my students have no trouble laughing at these characters and their shallowness. But we, as early 21st century folk, too have codes that separate the hots from the nots, to quote a Facebook page in the local news recently. As a class, we started to identify various markers or codes that could be used to rank others and came up with a list. What people wear, what cell phone they have, what laptop they use, what car they drive, what bands they listen to, what size their jeans are, what status their relationship is in, what apartment complex they live in, what films they watch, what facial hair they grow, and so on. My students found that these things that seemingly describe actually prescribed certain behaviors and beliefs deemed important to acceptance and worth. Oftentimes, we are unaware that we are ascribing worth to people in ways that contradict or challenge our professed beliefs as Christians. Wealth, physical appearance, education, race, ethnicity, gender, sexuality, religious affiliation, and political party are just some categories that can be used to lift some folk up and bring some others down. Whether we like to admit it or not, it is human to rank and ascribe value to others, and more often than not, we ascribe value to people who are like us than to those who are different. It is now cliché to say this, but we fear what we don't know, so difference is made suspect or bad, whereas familiarity breeds comfort, so sameness becomes more valuable. In addition, fear of coming up short or fear of not being enough often propels negative behaviors. Because we fear we are less somehow, we seek to elevate ourselves over others to convince ourselves that we indeed are valuable. Where do these systems that evaluate worth come from? These systems are neither eternal nor transcendent, but are human creations that are based in place and time, more often than not benefiting those in positions of power who have created those systems. For example, pseudoscientific ideas of racial superiority elevating Anglo-Saxons above all others were perpetuated for centuries in order to justify devaluing and dehumanizing persons of color so that their land might be seized and their bodies used as slaves or subjects. Until recently, social narratives said that humans in possession of a double X chromosome were intellectually inferior, predisposed to emotional irrationality, and incapable of governing themselves, let alone governing others. This valuation barred women from holding property, gaining an education, voting in elections, and participating in the public sphere. These human systems by which human beings have been evaluated, categorized, and ranked have changed with time and place. And obviously, these systems that elevate some and denigrate others are destructive and have caused wars, enslavement, discrimination, violence of a social and global scale. These false systems of value also have negative impact on a smaller scale, on the individual and his or her sense of worth. Being told that you are less, that you'll never fit in or add up, or that you'll be accepted only when you change who you are, 
is destructive emotionally, spiritually, and at times physically. One system of valuation that has negative consequences for feelings of individual worth is a system of beauty. Human beings go to great lengths to achieve some ideal beauty. Extreme workouts, plastic surgery, eating disorders, elaborate makeup rituals, extensive hair and nail treatment, compulsive shopping. All of these behaviors stem from the desire to be beautiful because we are taught to believe that beautiful people are more valuable than others. We here in Utah are not immune to this trend. In November 2007, Forbes magazine named Salt Lake City the vainest city in America because it had more plastic surgeons and used more beauty products per capita than any other place in the United States. Drive down I-15 and you'll see sign after sign offering to fix how you look to make a better you. Scroll through a Facebook feed or watch one commercial break during primetime TV hours and you'll see several examples in which bodies are objectified, shamed, and tied to one's individual worth. Or if we are prisoners in the wasteland that is reality TV, we are subjected to scores of plastic surgery shows, makeover shows, dating shows, and dangerous weight loss competitions inundating us with the message that one can never be beautiful enough and that happiness is predicated upon one's skin, teeth, hair, weight, shape, and wardrobe. We read in 1 Samuel 16:7 that man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. And our modern culture's obsession with beauty indeed confirms that. This obsession, it's not without its cost. In his October 2005 General Conference talk, Elder Jeffrey R. Holland remarked on this false system of value in its destructive nature, pleading with women, young and old, quote, to please be more accepting of yourselves, including your body, shape, and style, with a little less longing to look like someone else. We are all different. If you are obsessing over being a size two, you won't be very surprised when your daughter or the Maya maid in your class does the same and makes herself physically ill trying to accomplish it. It is spiritually destructive, and it accounts for much of the unhappiness women, including young women, face in the modern world. And if adults are preoccupied with appearance, tucking and nipping and implanting and remodeling everything that can be remodeled, those pressures and anxieties will certainly seep through to children. At some point, the problem becomes what the Book of Mormon called vain imaginations. As Elder Holland says, this preoccupation with appearance and this socially constructed idea of beauty as that by which we find worth or value is physically and spiritually destructive. And it isn't just limited to women. Men, too, have to negotiate pressures of appearance and eating disorders, exercise bulimia, and psychological troubles associated with achieving beauty are on the rise among men. Are beautiful people better people? Does God love them more? I'm sure we would all respond with a resounding no. However, do you say no when you look in the mirror and criticize yourself or when you criticize others for their appearance? Do we believe what we say? Remember, the ideal beauty is a construction of this world, and we can point to the usual suspects for this false system of value—the fashion industry, advertising, television, and so on. And yes, we are bombarded with images that say, this is beautiful. If you are this, you will be popular, you will be important, you will be dateable, you will be marriageable, you will be worth loving. And while we know this to be false, 
The rates of tucking and nipping and implanting and remodeling, as Elder Holland said. The rates of eating disorders and depression among college students on this campus and on others tells us that this is very real. One of my favorite works of literature is Lorraine Hansberry's play, A Raisin in the Sun. This play examines the ways that socially constructed categories of worth can grind down individuals, and it offers a corrective. The younger family is poor, black, and living in Southside Chicago after World War II. The degradations of racist housing and hiring practice have worn them out, eating away at familial relationships and draining each individual of hope. At the beginning of the third act, the younger family is reeling from the news that Walter Lee's actions have lost the small inheritance that could have helped them to better their situation. His sister Benita turns on him, saying he is no longer a man, but a toothless rat. Her mother corrects her, reminding her that she taught her to love him, to which Benita replies, Love him? There is nothing left to love. Indeed, the oppressive weight of racism has told the youngers that they are worth nothing so many times that they are starting to believe it. Yet Mama rightly says in this memorable speech, There is always something left to love. Child, when do you think is the time to love somebody the most? When they've done good and made things easy for everybody? Well then, you ain't through learning, because that ain't the time at all. It's when he's at his lowest and can't believe in himself because the world done whipped him so. When you start measuring somebody, measure him right, child. Measure him right. Make sure you done take into account what hills and valleys he come through before he got to wherever he is. Mama reminds Benita that all individuals are of worth and that there's always something to love and that we must rethink how we measure each other. Ultimately, she argues that correct measurement is not contingent on external factors, but instead is based upon one's immutable worth as a human being. And for Mama, a practicing Christian, there's more. Worth cannot be diminished, and there's always something to love, because all are children of God. Now, Heavenly Father knew we would have trouble with this. Indeed, the scriptures are full of commands to resist the human impulse to rank people and instead to see them as God does. For example, Leviticus contains several injunctions to the Israelites to accept and love all those among them. In Leviticus 19.34, we read, And if a stranger sojourn with thee in your land, ye shall not vex him. But the stranger that dwelleth with you shall be unto you as one born among you, and thou shalt love him as thyself. For ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. Here God commands the Israelites to look past human-made constructions of nationality and religious practice and to see and love these strangers as one born among you. He commands that we not vex others we perceive as different. He asks that we recognize that us-them divisions are artificial because all are God's children. He also reminds the Israelites that they too were strangers and that we all are strangers at one point or another in our lives. If God did and could show mercy to them, his children, then so should they to others. Earlier, Leviticus 19.18 commands the Israelites to love thy neighbor as thyself. I am Lord. There are no caveats here. Love thy neighbor unless he is X, Y, or Z. But a command for total inclusion. The final statement, 
I am Lord, underscores who is speaking and distinguishes the divine commandment to love inclusively from the human tendency to distinguish, evaluate, discriminate, and tolerate. In fact, one of my least favorite words is tolerate because its popular usage assigns a superiority to the speaker and an inferiority to the object of their speech. You tolerate somebody's person, beliefs, or actions, which implies that your own person, beliefs, or actions are superior. Yet this is not the Lord's way, and our leaders have pointed this out to us. In the February 2013 issue of the Liahona, tolerance is, quote, defined as a friendly and fair attitude towards unfamiliar or different opinions or practices, or towards people who hold or practice them. Note the words friendly and fair in this definition. Similarly, in a September 2011 CES devotional, Elder Oaks asked us to, quote, be more thoughtful about the nature of tolerance, unquote, stressing that all are brothers and sisters in God, and as such, deserve respect. Mutual respect is the term that Elder Nelson used in his April 1994 General Conference talk on tolerance, citing a recent statement by the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles that read, We sincerely believe that as we acknowledge one another with consideration and compassion, we will discover that we can all peacefully coexist despite our deepest differences. Consideration and compassion, not condescension, are the attributes our leaders invite us to magnify. As President Dieter F. Uchtdorf said in his 2010 address, You Are My Hands, quote, When I think of the Savior, I often picture him with hands outstretched, reaching out to comfort, heal, bless, and love. He always talked with, never down to people. He loved the humble and meek and walked among them, ministering to them and offering hope and salvation. That is what he did during his mortal life. It is what he would be doing if he were living among us today. And it is what we should be doing as his disciples and members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The connotation of tolerate that suggests judgment, condescension, and distaste does not work with the Lord's example of talking with versus down to people and his injunction to love all liberally, withholding nothing. As he and our leaders have taught, compassion, respect, fairness, friendliness, and thoughtfulness mark how we should look upon difference of opinion, beliefs, and position in life. For as Elder Oaks said, all are brothers and sisters of and in God. Christ himself refused to recognize distinctions of class, nationality, race, gender, politics, or faith among people but instead saw each individual as a child of God, worthy of his time, his service, his teachings, and his love. When a diseased woman, who was shunned by all others, approached him for help and took hold of his garment, he neither condemned nor dismissed her, but blessed her. When a fallen woman approached him to wash his feet, Christ didn't chastise her, but instead accepted her act of charity. When the Pharisees criticized him for dining with a publican, a man who represented the wrong profession, the wrong politics, and an alien occupying nation, Christ rebuked them, saying that his word and his love was for all. Finally, when Jesus saw the Samaritan woman at the well, he did not shun her as taboo would demand for being a woman and a Samaritan, but spoke to her, taught her, and loved her. 
Likewise, his parables taught that we need to see beyond these human-created divisions that classify and evaluate people to see them for who and what they are, children of God. The Good Samaritan in Luke 10 is a perfect example of this. We all know the story. Before the Samaritan came along, a priest and a Levi passed by the injured man. Then came the Samaritan. This alleged enemy of Israel could easily have said, Oh, this guy is a foreigner. This guy is my enemy. This guy is from another church. Somebody else should take care of him because he is not my problem or worth my time. Instead of seeing these differences and divisions, he saw this man as a human being of worth and acted on that vision. It was this man from the outside, this stranger, who had compassion on the robbed man, binding up his wounds and providing for his shelter and further care. With this parable, Christ teaches that we need to love and care for all people, not just those like us, but because all are of worth to him. Furthermore, since he was teaching this lesson to his disciples, he is teaching that a measure of our discipleship to him is how we treat all others. Do we pass judgment on and pass over others, or do we stop to aid and minister unto them? This reminds me of something the French philosopher Simone de Beauvoir wrote. One's life has value so long as one attributes value to the life of others by means of love, friendship, indignation, and compassion. Now, I would argue that all lives have value, but that our value as disciples of Christ depends upon how we attribute value to the life of others. If we devalue, demean, denigrate, or dismiss others, We diminish our discipleship and destroy that which makes us human—compassion. But when we value others, we not only demonstrate the best that humanity is, but we also magnify our discipleship. Time and time again, the scriptures, prophets, apostles, and the Lord himself call us to love all people. Here are just a few examples. As read earlier, Leviticus 19.18 tells us to love thy neighbor as thyself, a command reiterated in Matthew 19.19. In the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verses 34 to 35, we read the words that have become a beloved hymn in the LDS community. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Now, the direct occasion for this command is Christ counseling his disciples and preparing them for the proselytizing work they are to do. Yet this command also extends to us, his disciples, in the latter days. If we believe in him, we must extend love one to another, and not just to those within the body of the LDS Church, but to all of his children on this earth. If we believe in him, we will do as Nephi asks in 2 Nephi 31.20. We will press forward with a steadfastness in Christ, having a perfect brightness of hope and a love of God and all men and women. And if we believe in him, we will do as the people of King Benjamin did in Mosiah 2.4, and will give thanks to the Lord their God, and will rejoice and be filled with love towards God and all men and women. The scriptures repeatedly say that being a disciple means loving one another. Again, there's no qualification here. It doesn't say love God and all men and women except for those who are or do X. No, we are commanded to love all men and women if we are to be counted among Christ's disciples. In his Institutes of the Christian Religion, 
Christian reformer John Calvin speaks of true discipleship and its requirement to recognize all humans as children of God worthy of love. Calvin takes on various arguments propping up false systems of valuation, disarming them with the gospel of love. He writes, Say he is a stranger, yet the Lord has impressed on him a character which ought to be familiar to you, for which reason he forbids you to despise your own flesh. Say that he is contemptible and worthless, but the Lord shows him to be one who he has deigned to grace with his own image. Say that you are obliged to him for no services, but God has made him, as it were, his substitute, to whom you acknowledge yourself to be under obligations for numerous and important benefits. Say that he is unworthy of you making the smallest exertion on his account, but the image of God by which he is recommended to you, deserves your surrender of yourself and all that you possess. If he not only deserves no favor, but on the contrary, has provoked you with injuries and insults, even this is no reason why you should cease to embrace him with your affection and to perform to him the offices of love. What Calvin repeats over and over is that the image and grace of God is found in all those whom we might dismiss or denigrate. He also stresses that we are all connected and none is better than another. And because all humans are children of God, all deserve our affection and offices of love. Or to come back to President Uchtdorf's talk, because all have God's image engraved upon their countenance and Christ's sacrifice inscribed upon their soul, all are called to be their hands, to serve, embrace, welcome, fellowship, comfort, and lift up others. As we read in Moroni 8.16, perfect love casteth out all fear. Love of God and our fellow men and women dispels our fear of difference and of not measuring up. It sanctifies us, giving us even greater capacity to love. This is the message of my favorite book of scripture, 1 John 4. In this epistle, the author maps out the nature of God's love and the love that is true discipleship. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God towards us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. We love him because he first loved us. If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how could he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. God loves us because we are his children and we are of infinite worth. Because he loves us and has blessed us with his grace, we are commanded to see all others as children of God and to love them, to love our brothers and sisters. The epistle calls us out for potential hypocrisy. If we say we love God but then demean others, 
then we really don't love God because such love would banish ill will from our hearts. As we read in the Gospel of John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God so loved the world. Not parts of the world or certain people living in the world, but the whole world, that he gave us his Son, a huge sacrifice on his part. And in return, he asks that we sacrifice our petty divisions, toxic sectarianism, and false hierarchies of value to recognize the worth of each human being and child of God. The why of loving is clear. The how is sometimes less so. Loving all of God's children requires humility and a desire to do so. It means that we have to shift how we look at others so that we no longer see people as demographics, but as children of God. This does not come easily or right away, but requires persistence and hard work. Sometimes we may fail, but if we do, we must forgive ourselves and try again as we strive to become better disciples. So, what are you worth? I hope that you know that you are above and beyond those false measures of worth that we humans have created. You have an infinite value that has nothing to do with what your portfolio contains, what size you wear, what party you vote, what color your skin is, what your gender is, and so on. Why? First, because you are a human being, and all human beings have value. Second, because you are a child of heavenly parents who love you and see you for the valuable person that you are. It is my testimony that God is love that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel of love, and that true discipleship requires sharing that love with all people. It is my hope that we will be able to recognize and reject those false systems of value that demean and divide, and instead embrace the love that is true discipleship. I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Viewing Ourselves and Others Differently, with thoughts from Michael J. Dorff and Kristen L. Matthews. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.